there is only a loose correlation between technology and uh, the welfare of the majority of citizens, uh, which is not to say that technology is bad or that we shouldn't have it and we should not have innovation. There are automatic, powerful forces that will ensure that as long as we remain innovative, we will all benefit from technological advances. And in fact, we might even have something approaching shared prosperity. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Goldie, today I'm so fired up because we get to talk to uh, a returning guest, but definitely one of our favorite economists in the whole wide world, and that's a short list. Uh, <laughs> Daron yeah, Asamuglu, uh, who is um, the Institute Professor of Economics at MIT, which is the university's highest faculty honor, and he has written a ton of incredibly consequential books, including one of our absolute fav favorites, uh, why Nations Fail, but in addition, uh, The Narrow Corridor. And he has a new book out uh, that is super interesting and consequential called Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity uh, with uh, his colleague Simon Johnson. And in that book, they argue, as we have argued before, that there is only a loose correlation between technology and uh, the welfare of the majority of citizens, uh, which is not to say that technology is bad or that we shouldn't have it and we should not have innovation, but they make this really interesting argument about the necessity of power and discussing power in this, in the, in this framework. And uh, I, know, I know you love the book. Yeah, and... You know, most of our listeners are not economists because, let's be honest, economists, I can't imagine why most of them would like this uh, podcast. <laughs> uh, but a lot, of, a lot of you have taken Econ 101 and you've had some sort of introduction to economics. And one thing you might notice was missing is this notion of power. Uh, Orthodox economics assumes it away. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's nothing about power in neoclassical economics that it's just, you know, supply. I mean, there's market power and so forth, but there's supply and demand and perfectly efficient balance. markets and all That's that right. stuff. Right? You just let the market do its magic and the invisible hand will balance all this stuff out. And so if a new technology enriches just a few people and impoverishes, impoverishes a bunch of others, well, that's Pareto optimal or something, right? Because that's just, it's inevitable. It's deterministic. And we couldn't have that technology if we didn't allow it to happen that way. And of course, what this, this book steps you through with different technologies and different examples over history are the different types of power and how different technologies have been used or abused and how none of this is deterministic. It's the consequence of choices we make at the institutional level, societal level, individual level, and the different types of power that come into play, not the least of which being the power of persuasion, which is something that we hope we have a little of on this podcast. Exactly. Uh, so with that, let's talk to Durham. My name is Darren Asimoglu. I am an institute professor at MIT in the economics department. And I research topics of inequality, technological change, and long-run economic development. And I guess part of the reason why I'm here is to talk about a new book that I have with Simon Johnson, my colleague and longtime collaborator, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle Over Technology and Prosperity, which brings my interest in institutions and long-run development together with my concerns about inequality and the future of technology together. We're huge fans of your work, and we're thrilled to have you on the podcast. Um, but for our listeners, why don't you just sort of lay out the general thesis of your new book, uh, Power and Progress? 
Well, actually, let me tell you why we wrote the book, which will also serve as an introduction to the themes covered in the book. We wrote it as a partial counterweight to a type of techno-optimism we see in academia, in policy circles, and in, uh, of course, the tech industry, that there are automatic, powerful forces that will ensure that as long as we remain innovative, we will all benefit from technological advances. And in fact, we might even have something approaching shared prosperity. And when this premise is questioned, people always say, are you claiming that this time is different? Because in history, it's always been fine when we have been technologically innovative. You know, the result has been fairly good ultimately or eventually. Of course, ultimately and eventually, there's a lot hidden in there. But even leaving those words aside, when you look at history, the picture that emerges is much more complex. In fact, I would say this time is no different. This time is just like many other technological transitions in which who controls technologies of utmost importance. And if technology remains in the hands of powerful leaders, elites, big companies without any countervailing powers, there is no guarantee that anything approaching shared prosperity will be created. In fact, we could be on a path towards very damaging choices about the future of technology, future of work, future of inequality, and it is doubly so with the advances in generative AI that we are witnessing right now. So I just have to ask, not to take you off track, was there some conversation or thing you saw or person you interacted with that pissed you off so much that you thought, <laughs> <laughs> I've just got to write this book? Because, I mean, I, I am Can so... Can I take the fifth on that now? <laughs> <laughs> I am so sympathetic to this motivation because I'm, uh, you know, as you must know, surrounded by tech bros yes. who, who are absolutely convinced that every thing they do, every word they utter, every move they make is somehow benefiting all of humanity. And it's just, it is maddening. Well, this is, you know, since this is pitchfork economics, I have to tell you that going back to the mid 2010s, there were several meetings with leading tech entrepreneurs or, you know, public intellectuals aligned with their views, which essentially gave me variants of the following theme. Of course, technology is going to create inequality. And the main problem is that pitchforks will come out because of that inequality, not seeing that we're all going to benefit so much that inequality doesn't matter. So all we need to do is somehow find a way of convincing people to take the technology on, but no discussion of whether technology really has to bring inequality, whether they really have a right to impose technology on people or a question that there are alternative paths of technologies and institutions. And that's when issues that ultimately led to this book started coalescing in my mind. Yeah, that makes that makes that makes good sense. I didn't mean to try to out you or anything like that, but it's well, just... you know, I, I said several <laughs> meetings. I didn't give you any names. You see. <laughs> anyway, okay. So, I mean, obviously, we, we can infer from your description that, in fact, there is not a necessary direct correlation between the amount of technology we have and and how great everyone's life becomes. Uh, but tell us more about what you discovered when you examined the historical record. Let me give you some examples. I think that's going to be the best way of introducing the topic. Here is one from this country's economic history, the cotton gin, which arguably transformed much of the U.S. South from an economic backwater into the largest exporter of cotton at the beginning of the 19th century. Cotton, of course, at the time was the most important commodity fueling the Industrial Revolution in Britain. And cotton gin really underpinned huge fortunes for landowners, complete reorganization of society. But if you look at what it did to the workers who were producing cotton, the answer is not so great. Those were the enslaved people who got shipped to the deep south. Working conditions got much worse on cotton plantations, much greater discipline, much longer working hours. And there is no evidence that cotton plantations, which were fabulously profitable, led to higher wages. Why not? Well, 
you don't need to be a PhD in economics to see the answer. This was embedded in a very unequal power relation. Slaves versus bosses, and bosses had all the power, and if they wanted the slaves to work harder, they could coerce them to do so. They didn't need to share the gains. That's just one dimension of the relationship between technological progress and higher wages or the pillars of shared prosperity that turns out to be much more complex than saying, well, average productivity increases, we're all going to benefit. No, workers need to have a voice, some power to make sure that they get a slice of the cake. But even more intriguing for many people, especially economists, because we tend to think, well, average productivity, that's got to increase the demand for labor. Actually, how average productivity increases, how we become more productive is very important. So the often quoted story or parable of the future of the factory or the future of the modern factory is that it will have two employees, a man and a dog. The man is there to feed the dog and the dog is there to make sure that the man doesn't touch the equipment. Well, I don't think that's a utopia. It's more more like dystopian to me. But if we are heading towards a factory like that, and in some sectors, you know, we're not completely far off, that those factories can become very productive. But they're not going to rush to hire more labor, more men and their dogs. They're not going to pay them more because what makes those factories very productive is automation. The ability of machinery and increasingly algorithms to perform the tasks that humans used to perform. So that means that they're not going to need more labor. And if they don't need more labor, they're not going to pay more to labor. So there isn't an even so determinate relationship between productivity and wages, even leaving aside issues of coercion and institutions and labor markets. So, so who buys the stuff that this factory produces? Well, we're having a little bit of that problem in the world today. But, you know, we are right now in an economy in which about 30% of Americans are doing very well. That includes a small fraction of entrepreneurs who are doing fabulously well. It includes probably 10, 15% of the population that have either postgraduate degrees or other specialized skills, such as excellent programmers or excellent surgeons or excellent performers. They are doing extremely well. And if you look at, you know, where a lot of spending is, it's in a few metropolitan areas, such as San Francisco, New York, and it's the type of spending that caters to uh, to these uh, ultra wealthy people. So we have more and more sommeliers and uh, personal uh, massage therapists and all sorts of individualized services and private wealth managers. We don't have as much of the spending in the United States going to things that are consumed by low-income people because low-income people are not seeing their incomes increase. I think you make a really interesting point about the limited connection productivity increases and, you know, general welfare increases have. And of course, I'm not an economist, so I don't tend to think in these terms. But again, it's one of those things where when you look at the averages, it seems like it's fine. But then when you look at the facts, it's not right. Like, it's just that there's just a that's a really great example of how average productivity gains and the average welfare of the typical citizen, or however you want to put it, uh, you know, can, can diverge so much. It's really interesting. So, Actually, so, I, absolutely right. You know, there's no nobody who consumes the average basket in the United States and has the average GDP per capita as their income. No. But actually, no. let me make another point. Yeah. We argue also in the book that focusing too much on automation and pressing down on middle skill and low skill workers has actually not been for average growth either. GDP growth and productivity have suffered in this country because I think we have not invested enough in the workers. Right. And, and of course, you know, it's this weird vicious cycle is that the less you pay people, the less fewer things they buy. So there's less demand. So less need to invest in the future. So then you get these horrible economic artifacts like a trillion dollars in stock buybacks a year, 
which increase inequality and so, you know, so on and so forth. It's, you know, all, all of this stuff is related. Absolutely. Absolutely. But there are so many other vicious circles here. Yeah. You know, the one that I would also emphasize is that, you know, you don't invest in the worker in, in your employees training. You don't give them the right tools. You don't create new tasks and responsibilities for them. And then you say, oh, look, they're not very productive. So let me automate more tasks instead. So there's another vicious circle there, which right. becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Let's take this to actually the what you really, the, the main focus in the book, the reason uh, why we are not making these investments and uh, why we're seeing rising inequality. It's not something inherent in the technological progress. It has to do with with power. That's the, the first word of the title. What's changed? Why did we grow this this incredibly large middle class in the three decades following World War II, and uh, then we decided to reverse course? I think that is the critical answer. And thank you for emphasizing those three decades, because they are not unique, but they are really illustrative of a broader trend that had started sometime in the middle of the 19th century. Perhaps they are the apex of that trend. Mm -hmm. But they show, contrary to what some people would claim that, you know, capitalism or market economies will always lead to inequality, they would always involve, you know, the rich trampling on the poor. They actually show you have a considerable period during which growth was rapid and people at the bottom benefited even more than people at the top. Inequality actually declined and Overall, it looks very much like shared prosperity. But if that's right, then it becomes also vital to understand how it came to an end. And I would say it cannot be understood without thinking about both what happened to technology and what happened to institutions and power. And those two are, of course, interlinked. It isn't simply a story of a few companies got bigger and more powerful or unions got bashed, all of these did happen. It is also that the way that we started using technologies changed fundamentally. Work that I have done with Pascual Restrepo from Boston University finds that a critical factor in understanding why some demographic groups, such as men without a college degree, have experienced declines in their real income since 1980, we're not just talking about stagnation, actual declines in their real income, is that much of what they used to do has been automated since. Or outsourced. Or outsourced. Which is effectively the same thing. Right, they work very similarly. <laughs> yeah, 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 they work yeah. very similarly. Right. So yeah. actually, that's a very good point, and let yeah. me uh, build on that, Nick. Yeah. You know, what is offshoring? I don't want to get into too much jargon, yeah. but people use the term outsourcing when it happens domestically as well, and it's got some important implications when it happens domestically, but let me focus on the foreign outsourcing. So people use the term offshoring for that. Yeah. What happens if you take some you know, manual tasks such as assembly and offshore them to China? Well, you're taking these tasks away from the workers who used to perform them. And those workers have to go and do something else, either be unemployed or do something else in which they're not going to receive as much wage, or they might even go and push other people's wages down. What happens if you automate them? Well, you take those tasks and instead of workers in China, now it's machinery like robots who are doing it. Same implication. So the two are very, very similar. So offshoring and automation have been at the forefront of this decline in the real incomes of low education, non-college workers. But automation has been with us forever. If you look yeah. at the 1950s, 60s, 70s, there's a lot of automation in the US then as well. But What's different is that automation was combined with lots of other users of technologies that were creating new tasks, new responsibilities, new activities for workers. So workers were displaced from tasks, some tasks and were finding other new ones. That is both technological and institutional. So for example, if you look at Germany, what you see is that when German companies such as BMW or Volkswagen introduce robots, they then take the blue-collar workers who used to perform these tasks that are now assigned to robots, and they train them even more so that they become technical employees. 
Why do they do that? Well, first of all, because they have an apprenticeship system and these blue collar workers have a lot of firm specific, industry specific, very sophisticated skills. They don't want to lose them. There is labor shortage in Germany. So again, that increases the value of these workers. But also the whole thing is embedded in an institutional setup with work councils and unions that encourages firms to find productive uses for this labor. In the US, the same robotization process is associated with these workers losing their jobs. Right. That's the institutional aspect. But you also see the technological aspect. The German companies that are doing this are also finding new software and new machinery to make these workers more productive. Whereas we're doing stock buybacks. Yeah, exactly. Well, so then the question is, <laughs> why did we get into this different path? So if this alternative path, not, not everything is rosy in Germany. I mean, Germans yeah. are struggling with productivity problems, especially in the service sector. But alternative ways of approaching technology and manufacturing is possible. I would go further and I would say alternative ways of choosing the direction of digital technologies was feasible. So we chose one. Alternative ways of prioritizing different things was feasible for businesses and they chose a particular path as well. So you have to analyze both together. And so what are the critical events? Well, I think two things happened, two interrelated things happened in the power dimension. First, what you might call the Friedman Doctrine or the shareholder value revolution, which is a symptom as well as a cause, but the idea that the only thing, the only socially responsible right thing for managers to do is to look after their shareholders, whatever happens to their customers, whatever happened to their workers, whatever happens to the, the environment, those are completely secondary. I think that started taking hold. And it could take hold precisely because countervailing power started getting weaker around the late 1970s and 1980s. Unions were already declining because of some amount of the industrialization, but then there was a turning point with the Petco strike uh, being beaten by President Reagan. Uh, regulations, government as another pillar of countervailing powers, that started getting weaker and weaker with the deregulation movement. So you have this double whammy in the business world where businesses were becoming ideologically more inclined to say, well, let's not share the gains with the workers. Let's even take active steps to cut labor costs, reduce labor force, and so on. At the same time, as the constraints that were that would have prevented them to do so were being dismantled. But it's not all. That by itself would have been bad for labor, but it would not have been as disastrous as what we are experiencing had it not been at the same time that these companies also got the tools for doing this very effectively. And that's where the digital revolution comes in. And that's actually a very interesting story, if I may, because, you know, if you look at some luminaries in the 1960s, 70s, they thought that computers, including personal computers, were going to be the mother of all liberating tools. They were going to empower citizens against governments. They were going to empower small businesses against big business. They were going to empower workers because they were tools in the hands of regular people. And I think they weren't completely delusional. Digital technologies, just like AI today, have that sort of capacity, that potential. But at the end, nobody came up with a monetization model for making money from that approach. Instead, you know, all these more sort of decentralization people, you know, they used to rile against IBM because they thought IBM was trying to control as like big companies always do. They were trying to control information. They were trying to control computing power. Well, actually, IBM became a small bit player. Other bigger players such as Microsoft, Oracle, and other software developers came up with ways of using the software for office automation. And then we came up with ways of putting this digital technology into other machines such as robots that could then the next stage of that could do the next stage of automation. And while we did not invest enough in using digital technologies for creating new tasks for workers. So it's the double whammy here is that the tech industry turned more anti-worker precisely when the business sector had the ability to turn anti-worker. And it didn't it didn't have to turn out this way. These were choices we made. It did not have to turn out this way. It so it's not deterministic. At, absolutely. That's the choice is the most important concept in the book. And if, if you look at Scandinavian countries where unions remain strong, 
they have used many of the same technologies, but you don't see the same increase in inequality. And if you look at places where they've made different choices about technology, you see different paths as well. So there are a lot of choices and those choices are feasible and very consequential. Yeah, it's so interesting. And I guess, you know, from our own, you know, from our sort of our point of view is that, you know, what the lubrication for these transformations really was that sort of generalized neoliberal view about economic cause and effect and that, you know, shareholder value max, right? Because if you believe, so the evil part of shareholder value maximization is not claiming that, you know, the only purpose of the corporation is to enrich shareholders. The evil part is the second part of that assertion, which is, and by doing so, they benefit everybody, right? That That's the evil part, right? Right. I, I think the second part is the, is what fools people, but yeah, yes. the first part is, is evil too. I mean, yeah, okay, you know, of look, course, but but if if all you said was screw the poor, business people uh, just make as much money as you can. Well, that's one particular social construct. If you're making effectively, that's a normative claim. If you're making a positive claim that when business people screw the poor, that will be good for the poor. That's a, that's a much, that's a much more powerful claim. And if people believe it, that is what lubricates all of that, all of those institutional rearrangements that benefit the few and harm the many. And Absolutely. that's 100%. But let yeah, me make three yeah, points, yeah. two amplifying your uh, arguments, and but one sort of putting a somewhat more complex historical perspective on it as well. So the two that amplify your points, first of all, you're 100% right, but it's not new. So if you look at other periods in which there were major technological choices and transitions with m important distributional consequences, similar arguments were made. So for example, when the enclosures were ongoing in British agriculture, where large landowners with the support of parliament were compelling others to give up their land or their customary rights to open fields and common lands. Their argument was, this is going to improve agricultural efficiency and everybody is gonna benefit. Even slavery was justified on similar terms in the U.S. South. So the, the sort of the conceit that, okay, we're going to enrich ourselves, but ultimately you're going to benefit, that's been discovered by many, many people independently. So it's not, yes. it's not a genius to discover that. But the shareholder value revolution was a particularly powerful version of it. And what yes. makes it pernicious in my mind is that I think in functioning organizations, there is a lot of what some economists like George Akerlof call gift exchange. You do well and you share those gains with your workers. And I think that's a normal human social cooperative instinct. You don't say... Social reciprocity. Social reciprocity. That's exactly right. So most of us, unless we are taught to do that, or we have a bit of a sociopathy, or there are some special circumstances so that we see the people not as our in-group, we don't say, I'm doing so well and screw you, I'm not even going to give you crumbs. Most people would say, well, you're part of this organization and we're doing so well, so let's share some of that. So that was a powerful engine of shared prosperity throughout the 20th century. It was partly selfish because when you share these things, then you motivate your workers. That's, what, that's why Henry Ford was at the forefront of introducing such high wages to motivate his workers, to reduce absenteeism, to create a uh, less conflictual environment, which was good for stopping unionization as well. So shareholder value revolution really gave a justification or an, an impulse to many managers to say, no, no, we're not going to do that. The right thing is to hold workers to down to as low a wage as we can. Yes. That's the most pernicious part to me. Yeah. No, but 100%. Here's a complicating element. You know, it was more attractive and more natural for managers in the United States to do that because management labor relations in the U.S. have been always conflictual. So the secret sauce in the Nordic countries is strong unions, but it's also that it's a cooperative arrangement that has emerged. The corporatist model may have some unpleasant features, but it, it cultivated that cooperation. And our cooperation has never emerged to the same extent in the UK, and that is something for which both 
managers who always fought unions and unions who took sometimes very anti-business attitudes, they're both to blame for that. And that creates a bigger problem for the U.S. because we need in the future, in the age of AI, we need labor voice. But how are we going to construct it? How are we going to make management listen? Right. Yeah. So one of the other questions I have is, so, uh, so I, I think we both substantially agree with your thesis that uh, the advance of uh, technology and the advance of human welfare are very loosely correlated. <laughs> Yeah. It's a um, conditional correlation. Yeah. Um, and, and that most of the time when we have a new technology, a few people win and everybody else gets screwed. That's sort of been the story of history until until people rearrange institutions and grab power back and claw a little bit, bit back from themselves. But at the same time, like we do want to encourage lots of innovation right? We, we don't want to be Philistines. That innovation is, of course, at the end, the source of improving human welfare in many ways. And we want as much of that as we can get within the constraints of finding ways to make sure that everybody benefits from it. I mean, I guess this is our benevolent dictator question, Daron. If you were in charge and were free of political constraints, what would you do? Like, what if you ran the zoo, what would you do? Well, so let me actually step back for a second and give one more layer of our theory, which I think holds part of the answer to your excellent question, Nick. So one, we maintain that technology is highly malleable, which means that you can use technology in many different ways. For example, for AI, we can use AI for more automation, more data collection, more surveillance. Or we can use it to make workers more productive, give them better information, more autonomy, more agency in how they choose to use their unique skills. So that malleability means two things. A, choice really matters and we have real choices. And B, the key is not to slow down innovation. And Simon and I never call for any slowdown in innovation. It's to, choose its, to change its direction. So we want more innovation. And I'm actually very open to having more automation so long as at the same time, we also use these technologies to create new tasks and new capabilities for workers so that automation is accompanied by things that are good for workers and good for the economy also at the same time. So that's why our perspective is you have to be very pro-innovation, but we have to make sure that that direction of innovation, the direction of that innovation is aligned with creating more demand for labor and better social outcomes. And in the short term, in the here and now, not in the future, I know you you point out in the book uh, that, you know, however much we, I certainly have benefited from the Industrial Revolution, but it was a, a hundred years of immiseration for English workers uh, before they started to see the benefits. Absolutely. And I think the Industrial Revolution is so, so important, so critical and so often misunderstood. First of all, it is true exactly like you say, we are all immensely fortunate to be living 300 years, 250 years after the start of the Industrial Revolution because our lives are so much more comfortable, so much more prosperous, so much healthier because of the application of industrial technologies and scientific knowledge to every aspect of our lives. No question about that. But those who say, oh, look at that, that was such a smooth process, are also wrong. For 100 years, the gains were captured by a few entrepreneurs and capital owners. Real incomes stagnated or improved only very little. Real wages per hour may have declined because working conditions were, got, deter got deteriorated and start people started working about 20, 25% more hours a week. Life expectancy fell sharply because people got pushed into incredibly horrendously dirty, polluted, infested with infectious diseases cities. And just the whole existence was horrible for people. The modern factory, the origin of the modern factory is a draconian place. It's like amazingly harsh, very unhealthy, incredibly long hours with huge discipline, very little autonomy. It's all of these things that people had to 
put up with. And why? Because the direction of technology was cost-saving, cost-saving, automation, automation. There was no worker voice. Unions were heavily prosecuted in Britain. There was no democracy. When chartists wanted to have some rights, they were all put in jail. So in that institutional environment, it's no surprise that it took 100 years for improvements in the technology to translate into anything approaching higher wages for most people in Britain. And, you know, a hundred years after really the worst of it, I mean, it, 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 it actually, the worst of the industrial, industrial revolution is around the time that Marx and Engels are writing. Right. But a hundred years, less than a hundred years later, 70 years later, or 80 years later, whatever, uh, John Maynard Keynes writes um, The Economic Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. Is that what it was called? Yes, economic in, in which in which he imagines a not-too-distant future, really, now, where he imagines we'll, we'd have 15-hour work weeks and living in, and everybody would be living in comfort. Um, uh, that he could imagine that then is amazing, that it's actually gotten worse <laughs> is, is incredibly um, disillusioning. It is, it is. I mean... Keynes was an amazing economist, amazing social thinker. And that essay is really brilliant. Everybody should read it. And he got so much right and so much wrong in that essay. And I think it is telling. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, that's so true. It's... It, you know, he got it bang on the head that industrial productivity would grow about 2% a year. And that there will be a lot of automation. So we would need much less labor to perform those industrial tasks. And then from there, he jumped onto two mistaken conclusions. One of them provably wrong, which is that then the only thing that could happen is that there would be less work, technological unemployment, and, and hence he said, either we're going to have many fewer people working, or it would be better to have everybody work 15 or 10 hours. And then in the rest of the time, we would take leisure and we would go to museums and, uh, uh, and enjoy the finer things in life. So he was wrong on the first because he did not think about new tasks. He did not think about what Simon and I emphasize so much, the choice element, the fact that we can use technology for creating lots of things in which humans are going to be centrally involved in. He didn't get that, and that's really the key story of the next 50 years, the period of shared prosperity. Those were the engines of shared prosperity. But second, I think he was also wrong on multiple fronts in how he imagined a happy society could be created. So there is a book out by a former advisor to James Corbin called Fully Automated Luxury Communism. I think the title says it all. Uh, <laughs> and, and I think that pushes the Keynesian view to the extreme. It says, well, you know, we should invest more in robots and we can have everything automated. And then out of that, we can create a version of communism in which everybody has abundance. Well, there are two problems with that. First of all, I think that's not what people want. Pro probably, probably more than two. <laughs> more but than, but than, yeah, okay. <laughs> Since time is short, let me just focus yeah. on Well, one is that it's not feasible. But yeah, okay. This is utopia. But, yeah. uh, but one is that's not what most people want. Most people actually want to be busy. They want to contribute to society. And if you just give them video games and income, that's you know worse than bread and circuses in the Roman empire. Yeah. But second is, if we have the power structure that we have today, do you think Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg and Sam Altman are going to be, oh, well, you know, we are the geniuses, we're creating everything, we're going to give everything away. Yeah. You know, <laughs> not likely. Seem like the political economy of that is right. <laughs> right. So, so great. So, so, so Keynes, Keynes, like most economists, he did not acknowledge the role of power in economics. I mean, getting back to the title of your book, so much of this has to do with power, doesn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So just a couple of last questions, Duran. I mean, I, I, we hate to put you on the spot, but if you were a benevolent dictator... I would resign. I don't want to be a dictator. Yeah, okay. But uh, if you were, um, and, and I realize you're not a policy person, but you know, w what are the two or three things that you would suggest we do about this well, actually, problem? Actually, we do, we do play that game with Simon. Simon and I play that game. And we do play that game for, you know, first of all, I think people always ask. James Robinson and I, when we wrote Why Nations Fail, yeah. we made a 
very explicit decision not to have a policy chapter. Yeah. Because Hear that, Nick? No policy chapter. I know, I know, I know. Well, because that was about <laughs> the longer-term issues that we thought yeah. we could get away with it, and, yeah. and we thought not having a policy chapter would have a chance of making the book more durable and not completely outdated within a month. Yeah. But on this topic, I think we couldn't get away with it, and so we obliged. But also there's a reason. I think we are at a critical point with the advances in generative AI we are seeing. Questions about who is going to control AI, who's going to control data, what direction of technological change we're going to have. I think those are really critical. Those are the ones we have to make in real time. They're not going to be made in 10 years. They're going to be made in the next few years. So that's why we do have that chapter. And let me tell you, here is my summary. I would say 50% of the task ahead is to change the narrative. If we, if Simon and I have contributed in a little way to the view that it is both desirable and feasible to have more pro-human, human complementary technologies, technologies that elevate humans, that keep humans in the loop and increase their productivity. If that is feasible and desirable and that's accepted, that already changes everything. Yeah. And then once we have that accepted, then we have to talk about how we achieve that. And first of all, you cannot achieve that without tackling the power issue. So you need to have some countervailing powers. The institutional and the civil society dynamics have to be such that there are more voices. So no, it doesn't look good. And it's not good when, you know, finally you, the U.S. Senate wakes up to the issue of AI. They have a meeting with, guess who, the heads of the top five tech companies. No worker voice, but, you know, these AI tools are going to shape the future of hundreds of millions of workers in the United States and billions of workers around the world. What about their voice? What about their perspective? So that doesn't look good, but it's not, and it's not good. And now that has to change. So you have to have a broader conversation with more countervailing powers so that it's not just one technological leader who imposes his wish or his will or his ideology on the rest of us. And then we also come up with some specific policy proposals with the full acknowledgement that these may or may not be the best policy proposals, but once we change the narrative, once we sort of agree on what is feasible and desirable, we can then have a much more productive debate about what are the best ways of going there. So among the ideas we float are a few that let me mention just very briefly. First of all, our tax system is screwed and it's not just unfair, but it also encourages excessive automation. We tax labor if you hire more workers as a company, we tax you at 25% plus, plus because you also have to pay healthcare costs and everything. If you instead you buy a machine to do the same task, you write off a lot of that, you pay something like 5% tax. So that creates a powerful incentive to use machines instead of humans, and it's a regressive tax. So I think changing that is a no-brainer. Who is going to control data? I think that's going to be critical. So we need to have data regulation and we need to compensate people if their creative data or other type of data are being used, then we also need to create regulation that protects them if they don't want that data being used. Right now, a lot of profits in the tech sector come from their ability to expropriate other people's data. We also recognize that there are natural forces, especially under the influence of the shareholder value revolution, that will push towards automation. So there may be a need for more specific policies like the set of policies that you know that were implemented in encouraging green innovation in the energy sector that specifically targets more human complementary uses of data more ways in which you use ai technologies for example to provide information to people rather than misinformation and then finally we also talk about some even more radical ideas such as breaking up of the big tech we have never seen as big corporations as the tech companies of today in human history. I don't think breaking them up is a solution by itself, but it may be a very important part of the solution. Again, going back to the issue of power, because if you have such powerful companies, they're going to shape everything. And one way you have to start thinking about is, can we reduce their power? Yeah. No, I, I, I could not agree with you more. Really, you don't you don't trust like Elon Musk to make no. the right best decisions. Oh, no. The others the I don't, but Elon Elon I do. He's, he's special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Good. the same people. It's amazing. It's amazing that in 
in one sentence, they're warning you about the dangers of self-aware AI. And then in the next sentence, they tell you, but I'm investing billions in developing it. I'm doing yeah. it anyway. <laughs> so, so I don't know. Having these decisions made by a bunch of sociopaths may not be the best choice. Well, and then look, you know, they're going back to the issue of no countervailing powers. So then what happens is U.S. senators say, well, Mr. Sam Altman, can you regulate yourself? And he says, oh, that's not a bad idea. Yeah. I, yeah. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? So one, Daron, one final question. Uh, why do you do this work? Oh, it's so much fun. Why do I know? <laughs> but, you know, no, no, seriously, look, I, I am absolutely passionate about this. I love doing it. I enjoy understanding the things that I think are formative for our future. This is what drew, drew me to social science. As a teenager, I thought I could study economics and then that would enable me to understand issues of democracy, economic growth, economic development. Little did I know that that's not what economists did in most of their time. But it, it, these, are, these are critical questions. They're exciting questions. There are consequential questions, and I love studying them. But also, I think these are really important issues for people of all backgrounds to be informed about so that they can be part of the debate. And that's part of the reason why we write for a general public. I have written a lot for academic journals, for my colleagues, but the driver of this book project was to reach a broader audience. And thanks for helping us do that via this podcast. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being uh, with us today. It's absolutely fascinating. You know, we love the book. We well, love thanks for having this. me. This was a yeah. great conversation. Yeah. I am yeah. really grateful for having been given the opportunity to be here. I think, Nick, one of the great things about this this book is it, it raises that issue of power, which, as we've talked about, is is absent from orthodox economics and overlooked. And, uh, you know, really, actually, they roll their eyes at. But also, and it's something we've emphasized again and again and again, how much economics is a choice. Uh, right. A lot of the policies that have led to where we are with the radical inequality and uh, the falling wages and uh, uh, all the other, and really the Trumpism that's going on now, the the threats to our democracy and to our climate, all of those are the results of choices we have made. And these are choices that have been made. And I think this is an important part of the book we didn't talk enough about. These are choices we have made as a result of the power of ideas right? and the power of persuasion. Right. And uh, I think it's really important uh, to remember that those three decades after World War II, uh, when we we had we built the American middle class and we had, as he mentioned, uh, wages at the bottom rising faster than wages at the top. And you had this broad prosperity, not for everybody. Obviously, we had an incredibly racist country, so it wasn't evenly distributed. But you saw it in the United States and in Europe and throughout the industrialized world. How we, it was not unprecedented, but uh, certainly very different from what we're seeing today. That wasn't inevitable. That was the result of decisions that were made based on a dominant economic and political narrative that was built with intention and by choice, yes, and was extremely deliberate. And where we got to since the mid-1970s was also a choice, and it is based on a narrative that was built deliberately to do the things that it did. Right. It was a narrative designed to enrich the few and impoverish the many, and it was very successful. Not just enrich, but empower the few. That's right. And this is an important thing about neoliberalism, is that for all this stuff we hear from the right about, all oh, liberal elites and all that, it is an incredibly elitist ideology. Yeah. It is an ideology that believes that if you are financially successful, it's because you are more meritorious. If you're yeah. poor, it's because you're less meritorious. You get exactly what you deserve, but more importantly, that it is the wealthy 
who should be running the country. It is the wealthy who should be making these decisions. And if Elon Musk decides that a self-aware AI that will destroy humanity serves his interest or he's just interested to see what it looks like if he flips the switch and turns it live, well, he should make that decision, not us. Yeah, yeah. No, that's it's so true. What I think is exciting is the way in which, I mean, we are in this great moment of economic transition from the trickle-down neoliberal world to the right. middle-out world. Daron is a middle-outer if I ever saw one, although he may not know it. Uh, <laughs> uh, because, you know, for sure, when you're talking about power, you're talking right. about the right stuff, right? Mm -hmm. When you're thinking about these problems in the way that he and his co-author have, you know, this is the central point of middle out economics is that, you know, a thriving middle class is the cause of economic growth, not its consequence, that, that these technologies and institutions need to be organized in ways that benefit the broad middle, not a tiny minority of people at the tippy top. And in a very real way, Nick, that this book is a continuation of Why Nations Fail, right. one of the main theses in Why Nations Fail, which is you want a politically, our economy does better when we have a politically inclusive democracy, that that is key to building a broadly prosperous economy. And when you have a politically inclusive democracy, you have the, that democracy is a form of countervailing power. It is. And that democracy will build economic institutions, which include everybody and generate more broad-based growth. And, and unfortunately, you can have, you, you can choose between that virtuous cycle or you can have the vicious circle we've seen in the past 40 years where we have people who are giving up on democracy and turning against it because their lives are going to shit. Yeah. Or at the very least aren't going the way they were raised to think they were going to go. Yeah. They didn't get what they were raised to expect. And it can be really dangerous because, um, you know, it, it, why nations fail? That's right. Nations fail. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> True words were never said. <laughs> Again, we, we, uh, we highly recommend it. Uh, Power and Progress, Our Thousand-Year Struggle over technology and prosperity from Daron Asimoglu and Simon Johnson. Uh, you can purchase it uh, at your local independent bookstore or that giant online powerful monopoly who shall not be named. And as always, there is a link in our show notes. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.